What we've been doing in the last few weeks of our study is we have been first asking the question, what is the gospel message? The gospel is first and foremost a message. There's content. And we ask, what is the irreducible gospel? And we look to 1 Corinthians 15 as a great place to start, that it is the message of the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for our sins according to the scriptures. Um, we talked about the necessity of, of Jesus saying, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And First John saying, if you deny that Jesus has come in the flesh, the humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ, are, are essential elements of the gospel message. But now we've been asking a different question, which is, what does the gospel require of me? What must my response to the gospel be if I want to partake of its benefits? Or how does one come to share in the forgiveness and the reconciliation that the gospel offers? Or another thing at the top of the screen sheet, what must I do to be saved? And we spent a couple weeks looking at the fact that, whereas the Bible uses a number of ways of speaking about this, there are three patterns that show up with great... Um, Numbers. There's three, the three most common ways to answer that question biblically. And, and what tr- can be troubling for us is that we, we really we like if there was just one patterned way of answering that question. There was one formulaic answer that was always used by everybody. That's not the case. Sometimes the answer to the question of what, how must I respond is simply repent. No mention of faith. Peter's first evangelistic sermon at Pentecost, where 3,000 people became Christians, all he says is, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Or the Great Commission in Luke, Jesus says, thus it was written, that Christ must suffer, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in all nations. Or Jesus himself in Matthew 3, from that time on, from the time of John the Baptist's arrest, Jesus began preaching the kingdom, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, Other passages would include the, the Jerusalem Council's response when they hear that Cornelius and his household have been saved. They rejoice and say, then God has granted the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So, on the one hand, there's many passages that are willing to speak of the condition of salvation as only, as simply, repent. There are many passages as well that refer to the condition of salvation as faith or believing. And, and you know those, but probably the most famous, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his, his one and only son, his unique son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or the Philippian jailer, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. There are scads of texts that call upon people to faith, no mention of repentance. And there's also a number of passages that call on people together to repent and believe. And those are listed. And so what we've looked at is, how do we make sense of this? What we've got to avoid is the temptation of finding the one passage that we resonate with, the one passage, maybe it's the one we got saved with ourselves, the one we like the most, and then that becomes our formulaic way of expressing the gospel, and we just really don't like everything else. We've got to recognize there are at least three broad streams that the Bible is equally comfortable with in saying. Now, as Jeremy Sweet said when we talked about this two or three weeks ago, it matters what we mean by these terms and what is understood by these terms. But I just want to make the first point is this. It is equally within biblical bounds. If someone says, what must you do to be saved? To simply say, you need to repent. Or to say, you need to believe. 
or to say you need to repent and believe. Those are three biblical patterns of words that show up with repetition. Um, and, and so there isn't one formulaic way of expressing the gospel. One of the first inductive Bible studies I did was I tried to find all the evangelistic sermons and acts to find what the common denominators were. There weren't many. The apostles show a remarkable freedom and a remarkable amount of speaking to their context in what content they introduce and add and what content they assume. Um, and let me say this does not mean there's multiple gospels. What, what we argued, if you look at the bottom of this sheet, the conclusion is that true saving faith must be accompanied by repentance from sin. Conversely, conversion sorry, is a single act of turning from sin in repentance and turning to Christ in faith. That, that's, that's the only way I can harmonize what the scriptures say, that wherever it's not explicitly stated, faith is implicitly implied, and wherever it's not explicitly stated, repentance is, is implicitly implied. If you think about it, repentance speaks of what you're turning from, and faith speaks of what you're turning to. And it's one act. So you can say, Jeremy, please turn towards the southern wall. Jeremy, please turn away from the northern wall. See that? It's the same thing in both cases. I, I, I suppose I turned left and right. But, but that's why the Bible can grab it from either end. The turning away, the turning to, or the both. That, that's, what we are, that's what I argued. Um, the next handout I've got, if you want it, I can, I'll put some, not everyone wants it, or maybe I'll just leave it up here. This is a document, the elders, we, we dealt with this back when Pastor Gary was here in 2012, we did a series on what is the gospel and the gospel, and, and we dealt with this issue, and here's a paper that we uh, that circulated then, that I just made some copies of, uh, about faith and repentance and their relationship, and rather than having someone hand it out, I've got them up here. I'll put them out by the mailboxes afterwards if anyone wants to see this. It's an adaptation of a section from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology on the topic that we thought was particularly well written. Um, so I won't hand those out now. Before I move on to the TAN handout, any questions thus far? How far, I've, where I've tried to go with this? Okay. TAN Handout time. Zeb, would you be so kind? Jonah, would you be so kind? Today, we are going to crack a big can of worms. I'm going to go slow. I'm going to open up to all sorts of questions. This may take a few weeks. I do think it's worth discussing. This will actually be the first time in any sort of group format that I've actually will be addressing this by some of its classic terms. We're going to be discussing the whole lordship salvation controversy. Um, and taking a look at that, because I think it's worth looking at, and uh, so we'll, we'll go slow, we're going to be peaceable, we're going to be kind, and we should be edified. So I want questions, I want, I want this to be a discussion. Um, I'm not telling you the way it is. So we'll wait for that to get passed out. Also, um, we are recording this ABF, so if anyone wants to get a copy of this, you can. Um, we thought we'd, there's been some requests in the past to do that. I thought starting this topic could be a good place to do that. So if, if there is any interest in, in this ABF, we'll keep recording it. If not, we won't. Um, so, so this will be available um, at some point digitally. So let me just get a show of hands while, we, while these get hands out. How many here, in some form or another, have ever heard of the expression lordship salvation? Just show of hands. Conversely, raise your hands if you've never heard of that. This is an entirely new concept. Okay. 
Okay, cool, cool. Um, fair enough. So in my sheet, I got some sections. We'll work through this. Here's the background. The quote-unquote lordship salvation controversy arose in the uh, mid-'80s, um, polarizing many dispensationalists. You may wonder, what's a dispensationalist? You'll find out next Sunday um, in the sermon. We are. We are. We don't believe Israel's the church. We believe the church's future and identity has distinction from ethnic Israel. This is largely a dispensationalist dispute. Um, this is not something the Presbyterians, the covenantal guys, wrestle with. This is, this is an in-house debate. Um, and not surprisingly, therefore, it's two dispensationalists, prominent dispensationalists, writing books starting the issue. The two views are probably best laid out, one in Ryrie's, Charles Ryrie's book, So Great Salvation, the other John MacArthur's The Gospel According to Jesus. You can also see then why this can be a polarizing issue. These are names that are respected. These are names of men who've been helpful. Um, Ryrie being one of Joel's mentors. I, of course, went to the seminary whose head is MacArthur, right? Um, these, are, these are good men. And um, Ryrie and MacArthur themselves are friends. But these books and the subsequent sequels, and other people jumping in, really, this issue blew up in the 80s. It sort of died down by the mid-90s, although it's still a constant undercurrent of it. But it was biggest in the 80s. Um, and, and so, to be clear, Ryrie would be on the non-lordship side and MacArthur would be on the lordship side. The reason I put lordship in quotes is that's the term that uh, Ryrie and his position have labeled MacArthur. It was meant to be a pejorative. It was meant to be negative. So uh, I think eventually MacArthur gave up and it's like, okay, sure, I believe in lordship salvation, but it wasn't the term he came up with. That's why I put it in quotes. Um, so let me try to dispel some myths because this is an issue that I find is commonly misunderstood. Um, I've, I've read up on this issue extensively um, and I do believe that I can pinpoint where there, there is a disagreement, there is a genuine piece of conflict and disagreement, but I don't think it's where everyone thinks it is. So let's go through what it's not about and then deal with what it is about. Okay, the dispute is not what about whether or not Christians will sin. They will. The dispute is not about a level of holy living that must be achieved or maintained. No such level exists. So it's first of all not about, well, are Christians going to sin? You believe Christians? No, Christians are going to sin. Of course they are. If anyone says he's without sin, he deceives himself and is a liar. And it's not about some bar. Well, you've got to be this holy. You've got to be this sanctified. You've got to be this obedient. And if you're not, then you're not a Christian or you lose yourself or whatever. It's, that's not it either. That's not it either. Although I, although I frequently will meet people who think that's what it is. Um, it's not it at all. The dispute is not about whether or not believers will bear fruit. They will. And, and this is actually a point, I got a little footnote here. Um, there are some non-lordship folks like Zane Hodges who go so far as to say that they won't. Um, but rather than deal with the fringe, I want to deal with the, the two that are most alike, the, the versions of these that are most alike in every way except the crucial issue. And so it, it, Ryrie fully admits that if someone's indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he, they will bear fruit. The debate is not about will Christians mature and bear fruit. Both sides agree, yes, they will. Okay? Um, the dispute is about, your, about the nature of saving faith as it relates, it's meant to be as it relates to repentance, um, as the instrumental means of justification. Let me pause about the word instrumental. When you start talking about justified by faith, we're justified by faith, right? 
Are we justified by Christ? Yes, we're justified by Christ. Are we justified by the works Christ did? Yes, we are. Are we justified by God? Yes, we are. So by can mean all sorts of things. And so we distinguish material means, instrumental means, efficient means. These are classic philosophical categories for discussing things. And what we mean by instrumentality is this. If a sculptor is making a sculpture, the instrument that is applying the change is the hammer and chisel. That is the instrumental means. The material means of the sculpture is the statue. The material means of our salvation is Jesus Christ and his work, right? That is, but how does that get applied to us? It's applied by God in response to our, that's the question. What's the nature of saving faith as it relates to repentance as the instrumental means of justification? As the trigger, if you will, that, that God then responds to in justification. That's what we're trying to zoom in and ask. We're looking at the condition of salvation. We're not looking at the consequence of salvation. Will believers sin? Of course they'll sin. Will believers grow and bear fruit? They will. Of course they will. Is there some magic level that you've got to achieve to stay a Christian? Nope. No one's arguing that. Let me, let me keep reading. It concerns the answer to the following question. Does the gospel call to, to, does the gospel call to faith include within it an implicit, and at, at times explicit, call to repentance from sin? Or to say it another way, is repentance from sin a necessary condition for salvation? That's, that's what the debate is about. Um, I visually represented it this way. Is it the case that faith will result in salvation and repentance, which I think is what Ryrie would say, that um, once you're saved, then with a new heart and with God's spirit, well, of course, you're going to grow and you're going to repent. Or is it that repentance and faith leads to salvation? which is MacArthur's position, and I will freely lay my cards on the table and say I, I am fully persuaded of, of MacArthur having the right of this. I'm, I'm not going to argue for MacArthur against Ryrie. We'll argue the issue. But just to be clear up front, I, I, I am fully persuaded the document the elders put forward would also be on that side as well. And we're going to work through this and take our time through this, and we're not going to push it, and we're not going to you know, bully anybody with this and... Let's move on. I want, I want you to understand the issue, and then we can start discussing it. Let me give you a practical example of the difference. Shortly after getting saved, after the Lord saved me, I went to a Bible institute for one year that was staunchly, staunchly non-lordship. And they knew it. They'd studied it. They knew it. And I began to have meetings with the professors afterwards because I was very confused by this. And in God's providence, in some senses, that really helped me, I think, get an understanding on exactly where they're coming from. And as we met, we came up with an example that helped to isolate and crystallize where we disagreed. Because sometimes when you get together with somebody, you're like, oh, we disagree, and you find out you actually agree on a lot of things. So as we talk, it became clear, all those things up above that I said, it's not about, we'd, we'd one by one agree, yeah, it's not about that, it's not about that, yeah, no, we agree on this, we agree on this, we agree, okay, here's where we disagree. And so the following illustration is one that I made up over a decade ago that they agreed, yep, that crystallizes where we differ. So let me read through it and help lay it out, okay? I want you to imagine the following scenario takes place. After church service, a man comes up to you to talk to you. He tells you that during the service, he has come to believe that he is a sinner headed for judgment. He also is convinced of Jesus' claims regarding who he is and what he did on the cross. He further believes 
that it is only through faith in Jesus that he can receive forgiveness of sins. He then goes on to tell you that he is currently cheating on his wife with another woman whom he claims to love. He wants to know if he can continue to maintain this relationship and also receive Jesus and be reconciled with God. Would you say, which of the following would you say? Quote, yes, you can. Yes, you can continue your adultery. And yes, you can be reconciled with God through faith in Jesus. All that matters is that you believe. I'm just confident that once you are saved and born again, that you will feel differently about your adultery. That's almost word for word what Marshall Wicks at Word of Life said his response would be. Basically, it's, that, that's not the issue. That's immaterial. What matters is, what do you believe about Jesus? And then in the back of his mind, he's thinking, because once you're saved, and once you're born again, and once the Spirit's in you, you won't want to continue your adultery. The adultery is a red herring. It's unimportant. The, the, don't, don't worry about it. What matters is, what, who do you think Jesus is? And do you want him to forgive you? Okay? That's one answer. Um, that would be the, the, the non-lordship, the Ryrie, whatever position you want to call it. We'll just deal with the issues, not the people from here on out. Second answer. No, you cannot come to Christ savingly if you still treasure and love your sin more than you treasure Christ. You do not need to end this affair first to be saved, but you should count the cost and decide what you truly desire. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I want to make one important distinction here. In my example, this person comes to you prompted by their own conviction, prompted by their own conscience. No one is suggesting we're going and trying to root out a list of sins for people to repent of. But if someone came to you on their own volition, freely, saying, hey, I, want, I think I want to become a Christian, but let me understand this correctly. If I do, can I continue to maintain my relationship with my mistress? Those are the two answers. Okay. Before we go any further, I have... Just to be clear, I have not offered any arguments for why I believe one view over the other. And before we get into discussing which view is right, which view is wrong, why, looking at the Bible passages, any questions about the dispute itself. So I'm not, I'm not asking for why you think one view is right or wrong. I just want to ask questions. Do you think you understand the two positions and where they differ? Yes, Kathy. Okay, that, that's, that's a good question. Let me repeat it for the tape. The tape is, uh, the question is, I, I thought, Kathy says, I thought that um, the issue is about whether or not you made Christ Lord or not to be saved. It's two ways of saying the same thing. Um, what it's saying is this. Do you intend to obey Jesus? Is the same thing as will you repent of your sin? Will you continue to serve your pleasures and your sin? Will they continue to be your recognized master? Yes, I follow my own desires. Yes, I do what I want. Or I'd like to obey Jesus. It'll be hard, but I'd like to try it. You know, that, it's, it's two ways of asking the same thing. Um, it's, again, the turning from turning to. The, the making Jesus Lord, quote unquote. You don't make him Lord. He is Lord. Do you recognize him as Lord? Do you recognize his right to rule? Do you, do you, yes, he has the right to tell me what to do, and I ought to obey. Or do you still feel that you're free to do what you want? No, I have under no obligation to obey him. I get to do what I want, and that's what I want to do. So there's two ways of speaking of the same thing. But sure, that, that's another common phrase for being it. Zeb. 
Yes. 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 Zeb asked me if 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 the result of the non-lordship position is a two-tiered Christianity. Absolutely, it is. Um, what you get is people who are saved but are not disciples or have not repented or have not made Christ their Lord, and they're carnal Christians. There you go. Um, and then you've got people who have. And so you do end up with a two. I mean, I've, when I was at Word of Life, they would have two meetings for these snow camps they do. They'd do their own version of Winter Blast, except it was like every weekend, and they use the students as the staff, um, free labor. And Friday nights, they would do the Come to Jesus message, and Saturday nights would be the Dedicate Your Life to Jesus. And I used to tell my friend Chris Powell back home that if you put the two together, you ended up with the gospel. Um, but... <laughs> It was, it was a tough time for me, quite honestly. It, it, was, it was really challenging because I'm a brand new believer. And of course, my background, again, to, to lay my cards on the table, I was the guy who thought he was a Christian for a decade or more. Um, I would have been a carnal, I was a very carnal Christian, um, quote unquote. And then, without anyone witnessing to me, without anyone preaching to me, just the Spirit's conviction and going to the Word, I became convinced that saving faith is a much more um, substantive and significant thing than simply, yeah, do you believe Jesus is who, who he said he is? Yeah, I do. Um, I'm pretty sure I can quote Ryrie's systematic, basic systematic theology. He defines saving faith as the belief um, and confidence in who Jesus was and what he did and the desire to have it applied to you. So that's his words. It's, it's the confident belief that Jesus is who he said he was and what he did really is what he did like he really did die for my sins. It really is a sufficient payment. He really is the Son of God. This really, I really am a sinner. And yes, I would like it applied to me. Yes, I would like to be forgiven. And you can go check that out. That, that, I don't want to put words in this mouth. That's, that's his words. Um, and um, so that would be one view, one position, one side. And, and again, my goal isn't to try to... I've dodged naming names and stuff for, for the better part of a decade here because my goal is not to pit two respected men against each other. At a certain point, though, it's like, okay, this was a big enough issue. It would be helpful, I think, in this context. We have time to ask questions to actually address it and, and, and speak to it and let people ask questions. So my goal is not to have you leave here going, MacArthur's a good guy, Ryrie's the bad guy, or whoever's the good guy. Jesus is a good guy. We're all the bad guys. But this was a big enough disturbance in the American church that it's worth addressing. Um, like, like I saw by the show of hands, most of you have, have heard of or interacted with this to some degree. So that's, that's my goal here. Um, okay. Any other questions simply about the positions? Yes! Making sure. Yes. 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 You nailed it. You nailed it. Let me repeat that. Neither side is saying you have to stop sinning. In this case, you have to stop your adulterous affair to be saved. One side is saying you have to be willing to. And one side saying that's immaterial. That's completely beside the point. So as a desire or willingness to obey Jesus or a desire or willingness to turn from one's sin, which is why lordship, repentance, two sides of the same coin, is that necessary? Um, that, that's the debate. The debate is about nothing other than that. That's the issue. It's a significant issue, but oftentimes I'll meet people who think it's about 20 other things, and it is not. That is the issue. Yes, Serena. Did you, were you here from the beginning? 
I said it was at the very beginning. <laughs> Aha! Yes, my, as my wife pointed out, MacArthur did not come up with lordship, salvation. It was what he was accused of. Eventually, he just gave up trying to, okay, sure, I believe in lordship, salvation. It was meant to be a pejorative. It was meant to be negative. It was meant to sound like another gospel. And, and honestly, both sides dance around that issue a whole lot too. Ryrie and MacArthur both dance around okay, do you guys believe different Gospels? And both of their writings are kind of unclear what they think of the other on that point. To my knowledge, neither has come out and said that. Ryrie gets the closest with um, both repent and believe and believe cannot both be the Gospel. One of us is in grave danger of falling under the Galatians 1.8 curse. That's about as close as it gets. But anyway, I saw hands. Jim. No. Right. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. Let me, um, let me start. Any other questions simply on what this is about? Yes, Deb. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul rebuking the question, what is this carnal Christian term and what is meant by it? Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in the first few verses, Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for having factions, for saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Peter, and I'm of Apollos. And he says, you're behaving in a fleshly way. Carnal is simply an, another synonym for fleshly. Um, like carne asada, you know. <laughs> fleshly. Um, and so from that passage, some think that that means there is a category called carnal Christian. Um, I would point out that Paul says they're behaving like carnal Christians. Um, you're behaving like unbelievers, in other words. You're behaving like flesh, not spirit. I, I don't take it to mean a whole lot more than that. Um, you're behaving like people who walk in the flesh, not people who walk in the spirit. But we can, we can look at that at length, but that's where it comes from. And for those who want the two-tier system, the you're a Christian, but you haven't made him Lord, you haven't, you haven't dedicated your life, you're a carnal Christian there. And then once you commit your life to Jesus, you're, you're, you're a spiritual or some other term, Christian. <coughs> but I've heard plenty of gospel, or I've heard plenty of presentations like that. I was part of a prison ministry where the guy speaking said, now I know most of you guys a few weeks ago became Christians. Now I want you to dedicate your life to Christ and become disciples. You know, so I, I've heard that on more than one occasion as a, as a, as a form of exhortation. Um, so, okay. Any other? Yes, Lee.
that's, well, now we're rounding the corner to which one we like, so I'll, I'll intro with that. Um, let me, for the tape, Lee was just commenting that it seemed to her that like a fire escape or a parachute. I want to keep on going, sinning, I want to do my thing, I want to live my life my own way, and I want to not go to hell as a consequence. Um, I, I think that can be a fair criticism. Now let me pause. I got the mic, and it might seem unfair of me here <laughs> to have the mic, but I want to op op offer free time, and I know this is a big issue, and I know that you may have heard other things, so I want to invite today in person, or if you'd rather send an email, I, will, I promise to deal with every issue, any question working through this over the next few weeks. Um, so send me an email, stop by, whatever format you want, um, I'll be happy to deal with that because um, I'm going to make my case in the next 10 minutes. Or I'm going to begin to make my case. I think it's probably the best use of the next 10 minutes. And then next week, actually next week we have a guest speaker. Next week, um, Brent Charles is in town. He's the director of Camp Good News. And I asked him to come and speak on the issue of evangelizing children. Tips, he's just an inc excellent, incredible child evangelist. Um, I've seen him speak to youth many, many times, and I've always been impressed at his passion and his ability to communicate the gospel to high school students and younger, and so I asked him to come by and, and, and address us on that issue. So he'll be our guest speaker in my ABF next week. He'll open for some Q&A, and then the week after that, we'll get back to this, okay? So give me two weeks to chew on it. So give me 10 minutes to make a brief case as to why I think, um, why I think MacArthur's right why I think repentance is a necessary condition. So flip the page, and um, let's start with defining our terms. And I thought Grudem had the best, simple, short, just, it's not the best, I didn't compare it, I read it, Mike, that'll do. Um, what, do you mean, what do we mean by repentance? Repentance, he says, is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Notice, it is not the work itself, it is the intention, the desire to do something. We're talking about the will and the affections. We're not talking about doing anything. Repentance, whether or not that repentance is a rightly a part of the gospel call, repentance is no more of a work than faith is a work. Both speak to the will and the affections and desire and belief. That, that's what we're dealing with. Um, you can argue that repentance isn't a part of the gospel call. I don't think you can legitimately argue that it's works. Um, the simplest proof of that would be John the Baptist telling the, the um, Pharisees, repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John the Baptist himself distinguishing between the, the inward change, the repentance, and the change of actions that come as a result, the fruit, the works of repentance. Anyway, so... I'm arguing that faith and repentance are part of one act in conversion. Faith speaks of turning to Christ. Repentance speaks of what we are turning from. They are not two separate acts, but both speak to the affections and disposition of the will and heart. We inwardly turn from being the God and ruler of our own life to recognizing the Lord for who he is. We turn from trusting in our own thoughts to seeking to conform our mind to his thoughts. In total, we turn from living autonomously, self-directedly, to living creaturely dependence. Now, before I tell you, I'll try to paint a full picture. Let me just show you some passages that I think teach us, because we should first and foremost care about what the Scripture says and not what plausible arguments I can make. So let's just read through these, and then we'll, we'll just... And this is just footnote. I don't expect this to be case closed or anything like that. 
Mark 1, 14 to 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So we know we're about to hear the gospel. Claiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. By the way, whenever repent and believe occur together, without exception, repentance is always first. It's never believe and repent. Never. Um, Luke 9 And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. Now, he doesn't directly call to repentance here, but the point is clear. If you're not willing to pick up your cross, you're going to lose. If you're not willing to give up your life, you will lose your life. In other words, if you're going to cling to your life in this world, no, I won't proclaim you. No, I won't do something that invites people to persecute me. It's like you're going to go to hell. If your life, if whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever's willing to lose his life will save it. So clearly what Jesus is calling for, and he puts the stakes at life and death. He does not make the stakes at disciple or non-disciple. He places the stakes at life and death over one's willingness to follow Christ. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Then he goes on to say, what does it profit a man if, if he saves his life but loses his soul? If he, if he gets all things and loses his soul. We know we're talking about eternal stakes here. And so passages like this where Jesus makes it clear the commitment he's looking for goes much deeper than, yeah, I think that's true. Luke 4, 24, 47. This is the Great Commission in Luke. What message is to be proclaimed? That repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Luke's summary of the gospel witnessing missions drive of the Great Commission going out to all the world is quite comfortable saying, what message? What message is going out to all the world? A message of repentance for forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in all nations. Acts 3.19, we already looked at Acts 2, repent and be baptized here. The second preaching, again, is a call of repentance only. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. That's Peter, second, second sermon after the church is created. Again, calling people to repent and to turn. A return, obviously turning to God in faith. Acts 11.18, this is after Cornelius and his household are saved and the Spirit comes upon them and Peter goes back to Jerusalem. Look at how the early church described the first Gentile converts. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. The reason that phrase is key is this, the debate is over Is repentance the cause or the effect of salvation? Does one repent as a consequence of being born again and and being saved, which I think is what the best exemplars of the non-lordship view are saying, or can we say, in a very real sense, we are saved because we repent, believe. Here, they speak of the repentance that leads to life. Acts 20.21, the Apostle Paul summarizing his his apostleship, and his missionary activity. He says to the, this is his meeting with the Ephesian elders before he goes to Jerusalem to be arrested. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, 
teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both the Jews. So testifying, he was a martyr, he was a witness, the Greeks martyrio there. I was a witness, I was testifying both the Jews and Greeks. What was your message, Paul? Of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 26, 19 to 20, he's before Felix. Therefore, he's before Agrippa, O King Agrippa. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Notice again, the Apostle Paul does not believe repentance is a deed or a work. You repent, and then you do deeds in keeping with repentance. So the argument or the charge that, that this, this is teaching adds works to the gospel is patently not what Paul thinks. Paul distinguishes between the repentance that's inward and the deeds that accompany it, just as John the Baptist did. Um, then you've got Paul in Acts. But do you suppose this so, man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Paul is talking here clearly about eternal stakes. You're going to suffer the eternal wrath of God unless you realize that God's patience is meant to lead you to repentance. Otherwise, you're storing up wrath for yourself. We're probably one of the clearest passages, I think, 2 Corinthians 7, 10, 11. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Which, you notice which side of the equation that's on there, right? Which side of the causality chain? The repentance that leads to salvation. And here we get probably the best description of repentance because he describes what's going on in the heart of a repentant person. You'll also notice if you look at these seven descriptive terms, none of them are deeds. For what earnestness... There's the first one. Earnestness, this godly grief has produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you proved yourself innocent in the matter. That's what godly sorrow looks like. and It leads to repentance and to salvation. Hebrews 6.1 Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ... Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Clearly, he's summarizing the elementary principles of the Christian faith. What are the first principles of the Christian faith? Repentance from dead works and faith in God. Sounds an awful lot like the way Jesus preached the gospel, the way Paul preached the gospel. He's saying the elementary things of the gospel. Let's press on beyond the gospel. The elementary teachings. First, 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, I know, I know that that's like a data dump of text, and I know that there are an equal number of passages that present the gospel with no mention of repentance at all. Um, and we will start working through that in two weeks. I I just wanted to lay out, my goal for today is that you are aware of the two views, understand what they disagree on, 
And then I want to begin by making a textual presentation of, okay, here's, here's some of the passages that to me clearly teach this. By no means do I think I've made my case. By no means do I think this settles everything. If anything, I think I've raised a bunch of questions that God willing we will work through in the coming weeks. So send me any questions you have. I'll deal with them uh, or ask them in two weeks or you can stick around right now and we can chat. But God bless you are dismissed and have yourself a blessed Lord's Day.